0: Hi, everyone. This is Raquel. Hi, and this is Jennifer. Welcome to Madness Cafe. This is a feminist podcast where we talk about women's issues, politics, and health and wellness. And where those issues intersect.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Madness Cafe. We're so excited today. We have a really special guest with us. But before I introduce our guest, I just want to make a couple of um, kind of announcements. The first one is, it's a trigger warning. This episode, we are going to be talking about sexual abuse and spiritual abuse. So if that is triggering for you, maybe skip this episode or come to it at a time when you are feeling able to listen to it. Please protect yourself. Um, We completely understand. The second one is, I just want to make an announcement, and this is at our guest's behest that we say this. She has a condition called spasmodic dysphonia, which affects her voice. So just maybe listen a little closer, be a little patient. Everything's good. So our guest today is the amazing Sarah Stankorb. She has written hundreds of reported articles and essays which have appeared in publications, including The Washington Post, The New York Times, Vogue, Marie Claire, Glamour, and Vice. Her beat spans religion, politics, gender, and power, but is informed by questions of basic morality. This means investigating wrongdoing, and it can mean reporting on how people find the strength to prevail. We are also going to talk about her book, which is amazing. It's called Disobedient Women, How a Small Group of Faithful Women Exposed Abuse brought down powerful pastors, and ignited an evangelical reckoning. This book is so great. Sarah, we are so excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me.
0: It is truly our so, pleasure. The first thing I have to say is that this book was very difficult for me to read. Mm-hmm. And I imagine a lot of people feel that way. Mm-hmm. And I also want to say thank you for writing it. Thank you. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how, how did you get drawn to this? How did you decide to write it? A little bit of background mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. I feel like
2: there are a couple of directions I could go in terms of background. Uh, suffice it to say I was raised Methodist, so I'm not evangelical. But as a teenager, I sort of bumped into the evangelical community. And it changed my own faith by college. I went through a period we would now call deconstruction, and I was the only person I knew who was going through that. Years later, as I was working as a reporter, I stumbled first into one story about a woman named Vicki Garrison, who was what folks call quiverful. So she had this uh, understanding that it was her duty as a woman to create an army for God, a full quiver full of babies, by having one child after another. From Vicky's story, I sort of fell accidentally into covering what it's been like for a lot of girls and women raised in very conservative evangelical communities, who were raised to think Christian patriarchy was good and godly, and then later decided, hey, this isn't working." And I guess, after many years of doing this, it dawned um this is a book. All of these people are part of the same constellation. and folks need to know their stories because as these pastors are falling, they're not getting credit for the horrible emotional toll and frankly, the unpaid labor of exposing the truth. So that's that's me and the
0: book and in NHL. Wow, that was a great description. I think yeah. we could have done as well. <laughs> not at all. What was really interesting to me And thank you for describing quiverful, because I think Mm -hmm. that is a really important concept. But what was really interesting to me was the intersection of the extreme religion. I don't want to just say religion. I want to say extreme religion, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. our politics, our U.S. politics, and our gender conditioning. Bringing those three Mm -hmm. points together kind of was like an arrow to my own heart, how did you come to tie those three things? Oh, that's a good question. Probably up until I was
2: reporting on formerly evangelical women who were leaving under Trump, I understood the politics part of it as just part of the culture. You know, oh, these are conservatives, they're anti-abortion, this mentality... Around reproduction was fairly consistent. There was the, the threat of homeschooling families who were raising children hoping that it would take power as part of this conservative movement. So I, I could see there were a lot of interconnecting threats. But once Donald Trump was in office, I saw a kind of a shift where Women who were um, beginning to question, uh, how should I put this, before the folks who question often followed a series of steps where they would question maybe the patriarchy or question the response to abuse. Some would keep their faith. Some would find other versions of their faith and maybe a few would leave. Once Donald Trump was running for office, And there were so many accusations of abuse connected to him and very important leaders within evangelical communities who had trained these women to have shame over their bodies, to feel as if it's their responsibility to keep men chaste. And they had lived with this physically their whole lives. They saw those same leaders very hypocritically make a an excuses for Donald Trump. And I think it, it underlines so brightly the difference between this understanding there are lots of responsibilities being placed on women, but it was godly. But then to see so many leaders back up, someone who was accused of had so much abuse and just get right past experiences similar to what they had. There was a fracture there that was different. That's when I started to really understand this push for political power wasn't just part of an ethos. It was this drive for power that was uh, like, uh, there was almost a theology of power that I hadn't understood historically and that could be connected to the lessons given to him, and when it was convenient, and when it was not, he could just excuse whatever needed to be excused. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what—that was kind of a lying answer. But for me, that's what it um. And I agree, became utterly undeniable.
0: I think that is the big wound that I have felt with the election of Donald Trump. Is it is a huge betrayal to everything that we have been taught and held dear, and Mm -hmm. held as our high standard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Yes, especially for the women who had experienced abuse in their churches and been told, you know, well, let's not talk about this, this is gossip. Or, well, you need to forgive. If you don't forgive, you're sitting too. All of this spiritual speak that shifted the blame onto them they'd lived that already and not had the support that you deserve. But to see it happen just so plainly and out in the open to me as a reporter. And this is backed up also just with numbers of women leaving the church around that time too. But it was a fracture. That's really the only word I have for it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think what what really scares me about all of this, and you talk about this in your book, that basically the end goal is to take back the country mm-hmm. right and to have it be a christian nation mm-hmm. which separation of church and state people this is not a christian mm-hmm. it's not supposed to be mm-hmm. and but but that's what that's what these men want mm-hmm. they want this to be a nation run on very strict, extreme, very conservative, mm-hmm. evangelical, not just Christian, but evangelical uh, ideals.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that that's what scared me so much about what you bring up in the book is that they basically want to bring about Gilead.
2: Yeah, I've heard that. Yes, (laughs) from readers. When I first started reporting, and I got to know women who really their lives have been wrecked, like they were waiting through a of having either or just baby after baby after baby, even when their bodies were ready to shut down, or girls. Raised in this, and you know, treated under the authority of their their father until they could be under the authority of their husband. The headship model. Like that, that um, however, he was very plain, but it it had this kind of old fashioned flair. So oh, one of the ministry's vision forum, and their catalog, They really. We gear up uh, little boys in Revolutionary War toys and kind of like that, that old time America and conflate conservative evangelical modern Christianity with the founding fathers. And the founding mothers, of course, must have been dirty over their children. That's the job for the women. So that's a form of this Christian nation model. What I see much more plainly now in reporting on this is straightforward Christian nationalism. And this is not like love your neighbor as yourself, Christianity. This is territorial. This is geographically focused. This is pursued through many of the means of order ministries, used, which includes homeschool curricula, controlling the way children are educated shaping the way families interact with one another, changing the way people are willing to vote. It's a whole packet, and for some people, it can be very attractive. And I think now that we see the rise of other conservative groups that are even, even in Congress talking plainly about Christian nationalism, it is more intense. And to me, it's almost as if what I was documenting were the stepping stones for how we got where we are.
0: Yeah, I think they clearly were the stepping stones. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And it seemed so fringe when I first started to report on yeah. um, like, equivalent. You know, how many people do I know with nine babies? Maybe I'd, I'd heard of the groups.
1: Right. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. Yes. yes. Yep. But even the Duggars, their story kind of helped the idea to become mainstream a little bit Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because they became celebrities of sorts. Yes. Yes. And
2: for folks who only know the Duggars from a few episodes on TV... And if they have not watched Any Happy People, which is way better than the title, sounds like it will be, the Daki series on Amazon. The Duggars were essentially the poster family for Bill Gothard. He was the... Minister who launched IBLP, the Institute of Basic Life Principles, which sounds yeah way out there, right? Like what's this mm-hmm. thing with this conference? And uh, yeah, I had some families that homeschool and use this curriculum, but they, they reached you know two point five million people in the specific people that they reached. When I first started reporting on this, I was hearing about the hack of and that family be very entrenched in this world. The palins, all sorts of people were part of Bill Gothers' ministries. Mm -hmm. And From that, whether in you know, sometimes they were just Southern Baptists, sometimes they're non-denominational, sometimes they're fundamentalist families. So there's a range, and because his ministry was not attached to a specific church, his ideas could spread everywhere. What the Duggars did was normalize it, and what the Duggars did was. Show essentially what success would look like if you did produce this, you know, full of children. If you had a father as the head of the family, if you disciplined your children properly and in a godly way, wow, won't they be obedient and help you raise the younger ones? It's been your almost easy success. And in some ways, that sounds like a prosperity gospel, right? Like, if you do the right thing, God will reward you. And over and over and over again, I've talked to people who tried to do everything they were told. And it went sideways. And they ended up in abusive relationships or regretting years later the way they physically disciplined their children. Kids who had educational neglect because there are just too darn many kids in the family and mom couldn't educate them all while breastfeeding and being pregnant and feeding them. And it's that the Duggars, before we found out about the abuse within the Duggars family, the Duggars showed just how good it seemed like
0: it could be. Which is an interesting concept, because when I watched the Duggars, and I was one of those people who was fascinating. Mm -hmm. It didn't look attractive to me. What makes the lifestyle attractive to people? Because in your book, you talk about families that weren't part of the community. They were drawn into it. What Mm -hmm. draws people into that type of community?
2: Yeah, many of the people I've interviewed over the years genuinely wanted to be good. They genuinely wanted God's approval. And they Uh, wanted to lead a good Christian life. And what evangelicalism and its many permutations is good at is giving you a rule book. And now someone else, a different pastor may give you a different set of rules, but there are a lot of overlaps. So I think that's part of it, is that you have this spiritual urge to do the right thing, and someone will hand you a blueprint for doing it if you believe they have the authority to present such a thing practically though a lot of families got involved in this due to their kid. they decided oh my kids so smart maybe i should just homeschool or they wanted to protect their kids from what they consider risks at worldly public schools and they started to homeschool homeschooling is an incredible gateway To a lot of this thinking because it pulls you uh, often into an insular support group of other homeschool families Mm -hmm. who are aware of a lot of these teachings. So, as a friendly, hey, I just want to help you out, friend, people will get books, people will get videos, people get introduced to homeschool curricula. Once you go to the homeschool conferences, massive ballrooms full of resources. And from there, if you get into a place where you trust someone's ministry with our homeschool curriculum, then you may buy other books for them. You, back in the day, would you get on a mailing list? Now they're on an email list. It's incredible the amount of content generation there is within um, evangelical ministry still. Um, and now it's more books and online, exclusive online content. But that, that homeschool realm often pulls people in and then maybe they join a community church with their homeschool friend. Sometimes it's this vice versa they've been joining the church and then go to the homeschool route. But it's usually
1: um at least very often that has been one of the ways. That... that was one of the many things that shocked me about this was that I don't think I made the connection to homeschooling.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Um, because I, that just didn't occur to me. I was just thinking, oh, it's churches. And that's literally the only thing that I was thinking when you were talking about homeschooling, I was completely shocked. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is naive, but sometimes I think about like, okay, so maybe like with COVID mm-hmm. like people out of necessity were homeschooling their kids or doing a zoom school or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or in situations where people really are like, okay, you know, the schools around where I live aren't great. And so I want my kid to get a better education. So I'm going to homeschool my kid. Like that, that's what I was thinking of. Uh Uh So now I'm wondering, are there, and and maybe this is outside the scope of your book, but maybe you found out while you were researching. Is there a way for parents to homeschool their kids without getting sucked into the evangelical part of it like is there oh, a yeah. trend with homeschooling oh yes and especially after COVID, there were
2: folks like uh, i mean we were also going through a racial right in this country there are plenty of black parents who are finally hearing what their kids were being taught in their history classes mm-hmm. and said you know hell no um pull them ahead. We're gonna homeschool. I'm homeschooling anyway. Now that we've been open for years, some folks have gone back, but there definitely are progressive families. However, also during COVID, during that lot during lockdown, I saw many former homeschool students scrambling because they saw folks just innocently asking for homeschool resources on Facebook or in parent group. And so the recommendations for quasi evangelical resources or resources you wouldn't expect to have a religious bent were being recommended. It can be a minefield, which Mm -hmm. many families are able to skirt around and do it other ways. But, I mean, I went to the great homeschool convention when it was in Cincinnati, which was fascinating for a lot of reasons. I and mean, I had lunch with a woman who'd flown from Chicago because she started to homeschool during COVID, or she decided to. Mm-hmm. And she was just showing me on her phone. She had done a whole unit on civil rights. Like, clearly, this lady was trying her best to open her, his eyes like, the, the breadth of history. And, yeah, she was in this very, very conservative setting. She had only come to buy homeschool resources. Mm-hmm. And so she was there in this place that was only selling resources of a certain type, and she didn't know. So there's that. People don't always realize, and the great homeschool convention As the realizes that the homeschool population was growing and becoming more diverse, change the photos on the website so that you might say, "Hey, uh, my kid will have a home here." I I just said, "Be careful," (laughs) you know. Read before you buy. If it's your thing, you know, it's your thing, but read before you
0: buy. That's fascinating. In your book, you describe biblical womanhood. Tied to purity culture and submission culture. Mm-hmm. How were women trained to be submissive? And why is that dangerous to them?
1: Let's see. I, this was, that was on my list of questions. I'm glad you brought
2: that up. Yeah. The idea of biblical womanhood. I, uh, I, can, I can have an episode just answering this question. But right. I think in our lifetimes, this fight became very significant over the 80s and 90s. So there was the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which was established, which gave very fundamentalist um, interpretation of gender roles within Christianity. You have the Southern Baptist Convention, which added into its basically doctrinal constitution, rules over women needing to submit it to their husbands. So that's the Southern Baptist Convention, is the largest Protestant denomination in the country, the largest evangelical denomination. So these things were happening. And so we also had, you know, feminism on uh, the rise and this was a reaction. Uh, and, and sometimes it's, I think, a direct reaction to Hillary Clinton. But this, this was happening culturally at the same time you have folks like bill gothard whose simple drawing of the umbrella of protection or it's also known as the umbrella of authority swept so many evangelical denominations and communities and that idea is that under the umbrella of God, or Jesus, you have a series of consecutively smaller umbrellas. If you walk outside of the umbrella, you'll get hit by Satan. (laughs) So inside that umbrella, you have God, or Jesus. Underneath that, you have a slightly smaller one, which might be your pastor. Under that is the father and your family. Under that, even smaller, is the wife, and then at the bottom are the children. And if you move out from the umbrella above you, you're in danger of satanic attack. This concept, and it's, a, it's not even how an umbrella works. You don't have staggered umbrellas stacked high, but this shaped so many people's thinking. And it, because Garthor was such a trusted source, people believed the authority he had to assert this. So that, in a popular cultural kind of way, helped reestablish this idea of women needing to submit, because as if you don't, you're opening up your family to say, hey, I could have. The idea of submission and then how purity culture fits into that is that children, but especially daughters, need to stay under their protective authority. So if you are being raised by a good Christian father, you will be well-protected from any evil or harm. The notion that it was dangerous for girls, adult women, to leave that authority before marriage led to an ideal called stay-at-home daughterhood. The daughters need to stay home. If they went to college, oh, they may become feminists. They may become Marxists. Danger, oh, danger. Yes. Men have that. No, 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 no. So they had to stay home. And then under the guidance of their parents, they could enter a courtship. And that courtship idea was popularized by a young, then, a young pastor named Ursula Harris with a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And they had to have a very chaste relationship. Some would avoid kissing until their wedding day, which, I mean, I've been to one of those weddings. It's oh, interesting.
0: virginity. Kiss-genity, I saw that word yes, in your Kis-genity.
2: book. Yes, and like side
1: hugs and no
2: side holding Yes, yes. And so during that courtship period before marriage, it's often on the woman to guard her body and you know wear proper clothing to show shoulder, no, just above the knee, because even thinking about. Sex, is treated as sin and if the man is treated thinking about sex very likely the woman made him do it and then finally when the marriage time comes the woman moves out from under her father's authority under the authority of her husband so that keeps her locked in a submissive role the whole way through and of course they're all under god and their pastor it, it keeps you unable to question mm-hmm. it keeps you protected from outside influences that may lead you to question. Mm-hmm. And, and then you're in a role where you're a wife and you're supposed to be sexually available all the time, otherwise your husband will sit and have an affair. And from there on, you need to be a mother because that's your role. And I mean, I'm a mother, but not a mother because I believe that's my, my only role in this world. But the end result of that for a lot of these women is sexual dysfunction. And for the the young know, women who are assaulted in between, this um, it was their fault. It's, my, it's my fault. I did yeah. something wrong. It's a trap with many, many, I guess, jaws they can snap shut over you the whole way through.
1: Before we talk about the, uh, the assault and the abuse part of this, mm-hmm. Um, and and you talk about this in your book, which I think you did a, a wonderful job of talking about it, is the comparison to the idea of Victorian womanhood, of mm-hmm. woman being put up on a pedestal and protected and mm-hmm. you know that sort of thing. As I'm reading this and reading about the umbrella of protection and all this, well then, yeah, protect the women, but these are these men are end up like abusing these women
2: because
1: mm-hmm. they think or they're being conditioned to think that that's their role, that's their right, because the women are seen as beneath them as opposed to the Victorian ideal of putting a woman up on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Because I literally did not do it justice there at all. Okay. So
2: hopefully I will. I think in brief, so during the Victorian era, there was um, the notion of like the, the woman in the house. That's where the virtue lies. Mm-hmm. And with industrialization, men were leaving the home, taking these jobs, getting involved in politics, and maybe having to sit, but then they could come home to the virtuous wife. And she could, through her influence, guard the children from sitting while she was home with them, but it'd hopefully be a positive influence on the outworldly husband of hers. Uh, with the rises of fundamentalism, there was some resistance to this elevation of women in a spiritual role. That was part of a shift to give men spiritual authority. And a lot of this is always a reaction to women becoming more independent out of the world. So like we're thinking like this is parallel to the suffrage movement and women going on like saying, you know, I deserve a right to vote. This is dangerous. Instead, you see new folks come in through the fundamentalist movement saying, no, 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 actually men should have the spiritual authority. And it's dangerous for you to vote. It's dangerous for you to have these external voices because you don't have the spiritual authority. And you can extract verses then, which is, like, how malleable is the Bible? Then you can argue very different uh, versions of culture are based on the same collection of books. But that's when you see this elevation of men over women. And in both cases, like, men still get to go out in the world mm-hmm. and do their jobs and have all these experiences. It's just a, it's a, it's a reframing of it. And then you do still, though, have this purity thread that runs through, and we're talking about, like, wealthier white women. That's Mm -hmm. where the interest lies in this narrative thread. But it goes from seeing, like, the virtue in them to instead protecting that virtue through sexual purity. Later in in the 20th century, We see that all is not great, (laughs) not great for women.
1: Great, thank you for that. Sure. I want to get more into like the stories about the, God, all the people who've been abused, whether it was by someone like a leader at the church or Mm -hmm. the church. It was the the dogma of the church that justified it. I think that's the thing that is is one of the things that is so upsetting about this is that religion, which for so many people is a a safety net, like it's a, it's a it's a solace, and mm-hmm. but in these situations, that was used against them. Mm-hmm. And it's just—I it, mean—that is just—it's heartbreaking because not only are they being weaponized, weaponized yeah, it's, faith, it's weaponized, yes, weaponized faith. Yeah. They are being physically abused, but also spiritually abused. Mm-hmm. Which spiritual abuse was a term I hadn't heard before for mm-hmm. reading your book. Which is—is is, all of it is heartbreaking. How did you get into writing about all of these women, and how did mm-hmm. you? How did you how did you get them to trust you? I mean, I, this is probably a, a multi multi-part question, but yeah, like how did how did I just amazed at how you got from where it all started for you to now mm-hmm. there's this book in our hands? Yeah.
2: Sometimes, honestly, the level of trust makes me very nervous. Sometimes these folks are so vulnerable. I need someone to listen so much that it scares me how much they want to open up to me. I will warn I I I'm a different kind of reporter, I guess. Like I take a lot of time to get a big story out. And I'm not the sort that just wants like break one story after another, especially because these are so traumatic. So I think part of it's just my disposition where I've kind of like uh, we don't even know if this is a story yet. Let's just talk. Let let me tell you what this could be like. It could be really hard. Maybe you don't want to go public with your name. Let's just see how we're feeling after we talk. So I think part of it may just be how slowly I move. I do believe some of it is because when I first started, I was finding people who had already opened up online so they had taken a big step to share what they had been through and so in some ways they'd already done the first hard step so they were ready to take another one with me after i got a few stories under my belt people started to refer their friends to me or if they heard a story they'd say hey you can trust sarah and there are other reporters, a small group of us, who cover stories like these, who I also trust and would refer other people to. So I think that's a piece of it. And then really, I'll go back. So if I have a story that's relevant to someone I spoke to you know, a couple of years ago, I'll stay in touch Mm-hmm. and if i think their insights may be helpful later it's like the last the third not third the last section for the end of the book covers moscow idaho mm-hmm. and uh, wilson's christ church those folks are desperate for someone to listen and take seriously what's happening there so i think that's part of it um and i think they've decided i'm someone they can trust so with just being in contact and kind of being able to evaluate me in an ongoing way. I think that also just gives them a sense that I'm not here to just exploit them. It's not my interest. I just want to find out what's actually happening as well as I can. So I, I think that's a lot of it. Also, I know these are people with trauma and I don't, it's not about me, it's about them. It's about the, yeah, I gotta do the research, I need to do the backup, I need the evidence, but they're telling me their story. It's not about me, it's about them. And I'm just there to document as carefully and closely as I can.
0: So, for the people who have come forward, I understand a lot of them were doing blogging, et cetera, mm-hmm. but they've come forward in their own blogs, they've come forward in your story, your book, your stories that you have in print. What has the outcome been for them and what do you hope the outcome will be of your book on like people who pick it up to read it? What do you hope they learn from this? Yeah, I mean, it's
2: mixed. So I, yeah. I, I have Moscow, Idaho on my mind. I'll say the day the book released a couple of women I've either written about previously or in the book held their own book launch in Moscow and read their own stories in front of people they trusted, wow. which enormous enormous. Like, this yeah. is a place where they don't physically feel safe, and they found a place to be safe and say, through my words, their voice, so that was enormous. Actually, Krista Brown, who spent a decade and a half, two decades, trying to reform this at the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, a American Baptist pastor in my town just flew her in last weekend. And we did a series of events, one with clergy uh, on how to make their congregation safer. We did one together. And she spoke during church. And there was something she just kept saying, This is so special. Because finally, she had people in a physical church listening. To wow. her, listening to what she had been through. People said amen to what she said in church. People yeah. came up after and said, This happened to my child. A woman came up to me after and said, It's been 50 years. I mean, so there's that also. I am kind of just waiting for some blowback. There's been, you know, a little online skirmishes of nastiness. But a lot of them um, still are not totally safe. They're not totally okay. A book is magic. Um, and I think some kind of hoped it would just solve all of it, and it won't. But it's a step. Um, what I hope for readers is that they have the step to get through it because other people have lived it, and I get it if you can't. I get it. It was tough. It was, it was a tough a read. hard book. It is rigid. And mm-hmm. it's it kind of part of that strategy. I, I wanted people to see how big this fight is. But I, I hope at the end you say, what the heck? What can I do? And at the very least, express a little bit of thanks for these folks who have risked a lot. And if you've been through it, no, that's not just you. I, like that's not a big big dream. I think that's a tangible dream. I think the power that people are able to hold on to and the way that they were able to enable abuse many times was based on the survivors of abuse being isolated and feeling alone. Yes. So knowing you're not alone, that's an important first step.
1: Yes. You talked about this in the book a little bit too about how the internet helped Alleviate that sense of being alone and being the only one that this has happened to, and that sense of isolation. It was a way that people found support Mm -hmm. and a belonging, Mm -hmm. in in knowing that they weren't the only ones who were going through this, and they weren't the only ones who were trying to fight against it.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and it's. I really wonder. Sometimes decades ago, was it just the same? You know, because it sure seems like this has been happening for a long time and no one knew. You know, they, they really did just think it was them or it's just that church. And when it was about the Catholic Church, the Protestants, okay. but themselves on the back, surely not us as Catholics. <laughs> Look at that. Because evangelicalism isn't a denomination, it's not a specific religious entity. In many ways, it is shaped by the media that people consume that defines what their faith is. It's the books, it's the homeschool stuff, it's the movies, it's, it's all these little pieces you pick up. Because it's so diffuse in that way, you don't necessarily have, you know, an immediate alignment. It's not like all the Presbyterian USA folks in one group, but you also have a lot of people with civil and influence. And I think that being able to be online and telling one person specific story started to show the impact of, spe- of various wide-reaching teachings whatever way they got to them so if it's christian patriarchy you may have gotten it as a kid and you may have gotten it as an adult mother but they still got the idea and showing the impact in specific life then can resonate with someone else reading it who says oh yeah this is this feel is exactly my feeling. I may have had a slightly different experience. I may have gotten into it in a different way, but this feeling is the same. Mm-hmm. And when you see that, you start to think, well, maybe there's something structural that is impacting on all of us. Maybe there's something in this ideology that's impacting mm-hmm. all of us, whether you had that ministry or I had that one, but the mm-hmm. ideology is the same. That's how... You end up with communities of people able to critique and communities of people who Mm. have various life stories, but see this common thread. And without the internet, I don't know how it would have
0: happened. It wouldn't have because they kept them isolated. Yeah. 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 What speaks to me about that is that these were isolated communities, but at least for me, It has also so impacted my life, even though I wasn't involved. I feel the effects of purity culture on myself and my mother and my Mm -hmm. uh, maternal line. I feel the effects of, uh, I'll give an example. I'm trying to write a story about my family. And there's some question about my sister's paternity, my older sister. And because when we figured this all out, that my sister has a different father than I do, my mom had Alzheimer's, we were unable to ask her questions. Mm -hmm. So I'm writing this, making it up that my mother was raped. And my niece says to me, why would you do that? That's such a horrible maternal line for me. And I said, well, because I don't want my mother to, and then I start thinking about it. I don't want my mother to Have gone out and had sex and enjoyed it and have, you know, autonomy over her own body. And then I'm questioning my own conditioning, my own patriarchy. Why would I want my mother to have been raped? Mm -hmm. Because it protects her purity, because then it protects my purity. It is like the most effed up thinking. Yeah. But it comes from those cultural influences that I wasn't even raised in. It's, still permeates Mm -hmm. this ideal standard yes yes it's i think that what is most beautiful about these women that came forward these as you call them disobedient women who told the truth came out online spoke about it you're speaking about it the most beautiful thing about it is it allows the truth to be spoken to be recognized to I think the biggest factor is you're not alone. We can come together. We can. I I know that we haven't defeated anything, Mm -hmm. but we could. We could change patriarchy. Mm
1: -hmm. That brings me to what I wanted to talk about is that that role of white Christian nationalism in Mm -hmm. politics and how it's changing the political landscape. Uh-huh. Um, and I think I started to notice this and I just didn't have the words to put around it how I don't know maybe twenty years ago twenty five years ago, I'm not sure when I started to notice this, but like every every person running for any sort of office would talk about their religion or their faith, and I'm like, so if you aren't religious. You can't run for office.
0: Do you know what I mean? Like that's there are no atheists in politics, right? Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so
1: that seems so weird to me. But now, having read your book, I'm like, that's all on purpose. Mm -hmm. That's part of this long game that was started well before any of us were born, Mm -hmm. and. That scares the hell out of me. It scares um, me so much.
2: Yeah. So I think so. Before the thinning out of mainline Protestant churches, I do think talking about your faith used to be a shorthand way of showing some humility. So, oh, you know, I may be aspiring to public office, but I I do understand there's a power over me. I will not be the most powerful entity. And that oh. can lead to some trust when you have a vast population of people who share sort of moderate Christian values. When you can resonate on certain virtues that builds a kinship that can draw people to politically. What we're seeing as white Christian nationalism evolves is that some of those key terms mm. if too so like turn of the millennium the uh, um suspicion toward muslims mm. becomes a piece of it and so it's a litmus test right yeah. it's not just that i'm speaking to your higher angels i'm also speaking to your religious and political anxieties all in a couple of words mm. um so there's that piece there's a Suspicion of other people, like 9-11, I think is also very significant to all of this. That we're so far out that I think it's easy to forget how much fear was baked in at that point. And it's interesting that George W. Bush was our president at that time, and the folks he was speaking to, whether it would inlay or not, um, were establishing a political organization around a lot of these these same fears. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was also significant. And then we're coming off Hillary Clinton. Gender can become part of it too. But that, that pulling away, we're other. We need to be a Christian nation to protect ourselves as a godly nation. God will side with us. That becomes part of the rhetoric too, and then over time it can just evolve. Having our first black president was, you know, a big piece of this too. Uh, And we had like the folks in the Tea Parties who saw themselves as a politically activated, but also were part of um, a conservative, often a conservative Christian world that gets wedded. You have Barack Obama. It becomes a great dog whistle to talk about him being not from America, not really a Christian. And so that distance allows for these harder lines about what it means to really be a Christian. In America, and I think all these all these built up over time to where we are now, where at least someone like Douglas Wilson, who your listeners may never heard of, I spent way too much time thinking about him, for you know decades. He's been trying to establish a tiny little corner of Idaho as a you know spiritual battleground, spiritual takeover, and. It's the town he chose is a liberal university town, and it's really fractured there. It's really, in many ways, a microcosm of see nationality with a lot of progressives in one place with a very, very conservative, patriarchal, uh, church with a whole lot of power and influence. But in Wilson's case, over these decades, he's trained pastors. He's got a publishing house. He's published over a hundred books. People gobble them up. He now has a kind of sea of mouthpieces who repeat what he teaches, who now have their own products, who now are publishing their books under his printing press. He built up the Association of Classical Christian Schools, which at times will distance itself from him, but that still keeps us Thread back to him so that families who are homeschooling get introduced into his ideology Um, he's a uniquely little known and powerful figure in all of this he's not the only one by any means but I think seeing what he's been able to do and attracting people to move geographically to where
0: he is
2: Mm. that's that's interesting. That's moving voters where you want yeah, that, them to be.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. We could ask a million questions, but okay. it is <laughs> we're running out of time. What yeah. did you want to tell our audience that we didn't give you the chance to? Let
2: me think about that. Um I think <laughs> Kind of what I want everyone to understand is if you're part of an institution and you experience abuse, if the people you turn to for help are more interested in protecting the institution, they do not deserve your trust. And that's when you you really should be going to the authorities anyway, but that should be a serious red flag that you will be safer somewhere else. And it's okay If you got yourself hooked in with someone who does not deserve your allegiance, it's okay to leave and protect yourself. There are too many people who have trusted the wrong folks, who either hurt them or then protected the people who hurt them. I just want people to feel comfortable questioning because it's it's too much. It's too much. It's just too much
0: thank you for that beautiful message sure thanks
1: yeah thank you thank you sarah for thank you for writing this book thank you for sharing all of these stories and and i hope the people that you that you highlight and the people that they represent whose specific names aren't known Mm i hope they they get some solace from the work that you've done
2: thank you
0: you're welcome. Thank you. Hey, I want to read something from okay. her book.
1: I it's funny that you say that because I I wanted to close you too,
0: huh? That she yeah that
1: she wrote. So yeah.
0: all right, I'll read something. Then you read something. Okay. It'll be good. Yes. All right. She said on page two sixty three, many Americans may have fled broken churches, but to what end? The goal of political dominance has been won while the church fractured. Millions of women were taught their bodies were a source of sin and silenced. I wonder how different the church and the country might be if they'd instead been valued as equally worthy and precious. If queer people were accepted, celebrated as whole in love. If a fixation on sex as sin hadn't been weaponized while rape and violence was covered up. If the segregation of American church had been approached not with a faux color blindness, but real limitation, if the moral code of millions had been infused with love for neighbor instead of rage over having sometimes to compromise personal desires or political prominence. But that's not our country, is it? It's not the dominant American church.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: On page 265, Sarah writes, I now hold with me an index of brave, real people who endured and did something radical in speaking up for goodness, even as they ached, even as the church they loved and the families who hurt them attacked them in the name of God. They were called disobedient, Jezebel, Satan's mistress, while they tried to protect others. From them, I learned a vital lesson disobedience is not wrong when you defy those doing harm it might be the thing that saves the rest of us in the end to all of those people yeah wow i i know this is going to sound weird coming from me as a not religious woman but
0: amen amen amen
1: I'm glad we talked about this. I'm glad we read this book. I'm glad we've had a chance to speak to Sarah and help help shine a light on not just Sarah's book and the writing that she's done and the research that she's done, but hopefully to bring some understanding to a topic that I know I didn't necessarily have a, a full understanding of going into this.
0: It's such a heavy topic for me and I will say to our audience read the book read it with caution but read it anyway because it's a really important topic and it's a lot of topics within a topic actually.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because and, there,
1: because there's so much to this then yes I think we realize this is a this is a huge multi faceted very important topic,
0: yeah, and I truly, truly, truly believe that even if you're not part of one of these high control religions, your life is being affected by it. Yes, I so. really, truly believe that it's in our politics, mm-hmm. it's in our religion, it's in our uh school systems, it's yes, in yes. our teaching, it's our neighbors are being hurt. Uh, One of the things I realized while I was reading this book is that I had a lot of neighbors growing up that probably were involved in high control religion. And I didn't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. Looking back after reading her book, I was like, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Things start to fall into place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a really important topic. Read with care, but Please read. Yeah. yeah.
1: Thank you, Jennifer.
0: Thank you, Raquel. Bye.
1: Thanks, everyone, for listening today. We will be back with more Madness Cafe next week. You can find us on Instagram at Podcast or email us at madnesscafepodcast at gmail.com. Bye.